A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Well, hello, Canada Land listeners. You might be wondering, where's Jesse? I don't know this high-pitched nasally whine. Well, as I can only assume you're all relieved to have a break from him, you're welcome. He'll still be here today, but this time, there's a bit of a twist. My name is Jonathan Torrens, and today, I'll be hosting The Interrogation of Jesse Brown. Or maybe it's more like an intervention. For longtime listeners, you might remember that Jesse and I have a bit of a history. 100% grade A Canadian beef that goes back millennia, or at least to the mid-90s, which is the first instance I can recall of Jesse trolling me on the teen talk show I hosted, Jonovision. This afternoon, Jonovision on CBC. Maybe it's more like a what's your beef for you Street Sense kids out there. Anyway, he was there to talk about his underground student newspaper called Punch. But over time, he revealed his true intention to enlist fellow guest Sarah Pauly's help to derail the whole show. Despite Jesse's constant need to be that guy, be the bully on the cyber playground, three years ago, I agreed to come on this show and be trolled in front of all of you. This time, I agreed to come back on one condition. I be the one to interview him. This is my chance to ask all the questions I've been dying to have answered. Okay, two questions, really. What is wrong with him, and why is he so angry all the time? So today I'll be putting the screws to the enigma that is Jesse Brown to find out what makes him tick, and what makes him ticked. Is the Jesse Brown we all think we know the same guy when the mic is off? Let's find out together. 
This episode is brought to you by Gabriel Parniak, Pamela Uart McNabb, Leanne Burton, Kevin Duffin, Sandy Carr, Bjorn Fontaine, Emma Hartwick, and Glenn and Sarah. I'm Glenn Gustafson. And I'm Sarah Earhart. We're both public servants in Toronto. We've been proud supporters of Canada Land since hearing the Thunder Bay podcast. I really appreciate Canada Land's depth and the thoughtful analysis that's far too rare in our news today. As a transplanted Atlantic Canadian, I appreciate the cross-country content, particularly of the Irvings and the Mass Casualty Commission. Thanks to Jesse and the whole team at Canada Land for everything that you're doing. Hey. Hey. How are you today? I'm doing okay. Which one of us is Balky and which one is Larry? I'll be, uh, what was the actor's name? I'll be Bronson Pinchot from True Romance. I'll be that Bronson Pinchot. Bronson Pinchot. Oh, I like him. Jesse Brown joins us now in the house that he built. I'm trying to gauge your tone. Is it argumentative? Is it, are you nervous? I'm like uh, scanning the, uh, the lay of the land here. I don't know what I'm walking into. Dozens of Canadians insisted that we revisit this conversation in a part two. And I thought it would be fun to turn the tables and have a chance to get to know Jesse Brown a little bit. So when this possibility came up, how did you feel about it, first of all? Like, my hesitation is just I don't know that anybody cares. Maybe you're asking if I, like, am I nervous about it? I don't know. No. I think asking the questions is kind of a default for me just in life. I ask it to get out of social situations. I ask questions uh, to deflect from myself. Um, So I guess I'm trying to find common ground. Do you, too, experience cringiness at the thought of people listening to you blather on? I think it would be disingenuous. Like I, I, I subject many people to my blather in, in you know, professional and personal situations. So I think I'm just too aware of the collective eye roll of many who know me listening. If I were to say, yes, I, I can't stand to make somebody listen to me talk for a very long period of time. And yet, when Amy Dempsey wrote an article about me and whether I was okay during the pandemic because I seemed unreasonably chipper, you were the one counterpoint who represented the eye rollers of Canada, who roll their eyes at me. Why is it you think people would roll their eyes at you? I am a podcast listener, right? And I think of the podcast listening experience for everything else we try to do. Like, this is a very important show about current affairs, or this is the only show that's... It's just people deciding who they want to spend time with when you listen to a podcast. You're just deciding which of the hosts of all the different podcasts you want to hang out with. And as a listener myself, I know that you reach a saturation point where it's like, I've hung out with Mark Maron enough, you know, like it's been great, but I know what he's going to say. I've heard it all. Let me find somebody else to hang out with. And I wonder about my best before date. Well, the funny thing is I cited a Ricky Gervais anecdote when I was speaking with Sarah and Jonathan, your team before this about the bulletin board in the town. And Jonathan said, yeah, you, you mentioned that last time. And I encounter this too. I, I have a podcast. We're approaching 300 hours. And I, I've started calculating the number of anecdotes I preface with. You and I have talked about this before. Like, at what point do you say that's enough of me? <laughs> like, you want a date or a number of episodes? <laughs> what are we What are we talking about? Well, no, it sounds like this is something that's reverberating around in, in your head yeah. as well. Even as I was saying that thing about listening to Marin and deciding who to hang out with, I'm like, have I said that on the podcast before? 
This is actually what you asked me about when you tried to turn the tables on me in our last conversation was just like, I don't know if you were as ungenerous as to call it a shtick, but I think you were questioning me about my ornery disposition and whether or not I'll run out of orneriness and not be able to do anything else. I don't know if it's orneriness, but I do feel like... So we've been trying to like make it less me. And on the Monday show, what's interesting about it for me is all the different people and all the different stories that we're now featuring. But yeah. So that's the option, Jesse. Have more people who are less ornery rather than you just simply be less ornery? No, I'm looking for people who are ornery in different ways. Like my favorite people are very ornery. And it's a bad habit for a person in a hiring position at a company that they like mostly own to specialize in hiring angry people and critical, cynical people. But that seems to be my thing. Um, And I'm just sort of interested in like, you know, different flavors of, of ornery. I have so many questions. Mostly it has to do with And I can't remember if I mentioned this last time I was on. I was thinking of Tom Green, who, when he was coming up, would have human feces on a microphone doing streeters. And then he would have a dead raccoon in a suitcase. And every time he did something, he had to ratchet up the audaciousness. And I know for a fact that put kind of a lot of internal pressure on him. And I wonder if the anger balls of the world feel that same kind of pressure to be even angrier. <laughs> what what can I possibly have to be angry about? I mean, things have gone like pretty okay for me. I don't know. I don't know. I, I feel like you only experience me, like I don't know how much you listen to the show. So I, like, I feel like our chief intimacy, you and I are my mocking, withering tweets that just destroy you when you least expect it, when you're saying earnest, lovely things. But, you know, I guess all journalism is about, like, a certain amount of, this is wrong, and here's what it's all about. We found something that's wrong. That should be informed by a certain amount of anger, but the anger isn't really what sells it. So it's not like we sit around, like, how can we get it angrier? There's, like, an element in criticism of, like, if I'm going to take issue with something, I you know, I got to mean it. Is that what gives you oxygen? There's different things. Like, if I actually am pissed off about something, I'll have a lot to say about it. And it's an interesting challenge because the things that I get pissed off at are pretty esoteric and niche. So, you know, speaking to kind of a general audience of smart people who might not give a damn about the thing I'm angry about, it's kind of like, I like when I'm like, how can I convey my irritation in a way that will get other people angry about this? That can give me some juice. Yeah. But there's nothing like a good story. What makes you angry? Like, what are the things that are niche? Oh, man. I mean... I think that the project of the show and the company in a way is to try to take this place that we're living in seriously and not just kind of consider ourselves like bystanders to news and history and the real world that we just like think of ourselves, oh, we're in the nice place off to the side of the big bad place. So, you know, the kind of operating principle is like, look at your own home and regard it for real. And it's not something that I used to do before Canada Land. It's not like I spent, you know, the first 30 years of my life really building up any kind of like fixation, obsession, or even deep knowledge of Canada. But with the project of Canada Land, there's no shortage of things that get you pretty irritated. You know, I think that the thing that's frustrating is we live in such a low engagement society, whether it's like the voting levels in Ontario or just trying to get people to take themselves seriously and our policies, each other, that is frustrating. That's irritating. And how much powerful people get away with just out of apathy. If you regard it, if you look at it right at it, it's endlessly frustrating. So that's your beef with me. You think I don't take things seriously enough. I'm too surface. (laughs) I'm too uh, upbeat and happy. I kind of gloss over the deep stuff. (laughs) 
<laughs> I thought we were talking about me. No, um, I don't think that's my beef with you. First of all, how often do you introduce yourself as Jesse Brown, former Jonovision guest? Just on average in the run of a week. Yeah, I, you know, just never, it never comes up. <laughs> it's never come up, you know, no one remembers. Right. I meant nothing. For me either. Um, but when you were on the Jonovision, <laughs> I feel like, were you 18 years old? Yeah. You were talking about the student newspaper Punch, of which you were the editor. Mm -hmm. You uh, proudly posted a quote from a principal that called Punch obscene and destructive. Mm -hmm. So the seeds were there early on for this to be your path in life. Like most teenagers aren't as engaged or as worked up. Why were you? It's a good question. I had a uh, pretty privileged, you know, upbringing. Nothing really to be angry about in any kind of like concrete way that a lot of people could say like, you know, they had to, to face adversity in various ways. I think there's something that happens, not to every adolescent, but it kind of should happen where the world is sort of revealed to you and you realize that it's much more stupid and mean than you were educated to believe growing up. And this is where a lot of angry music and bad haircuts come from. And a lot of that, mm. I think, with age, it's a good idea to find context and to kind of like forgive the world some of its hypocrisies and, and to understand the compromises that created the way things are. But there's a piece of that that's worth hanging on to that I think some people let slide because there's an idealism to it that like it shouldn't be this stupid. And there shouldn't be such a lie about it being things making more sense and working better than, than they actually do. And that's worth holding on to. That's the best part of teenagers. As uh, hair metal gives way to pop, gives way to grunge, um, so too has the media shifted since those punch days. But your tone hasn't really. <laughs> uh, last time I was on, I, I said I was worried that you've cynicked yourself into a corner. And, and what is the long play is it hard to remain cynical? Where do you find the stamina for that? It's so, it, it's so easy. It's, uh, it's terribly easy. Look, we're both parents, and I think you can't be cynical and be a parent. But if anything, that just like actually makes you more invested in, I don't know, wanting things to be better. Well, I would argue as a parent, one thing that changed in my life is I want things to be simpler. I want to be around more. I get a lot of invitations to be a guest on people's podcasts, for example. I feel like time is my wealth, and the more of it I have, the better I feel. So I can only imagine if you're angry in your life and work, that's hard, isn't it? I just want to back up a bit. Are you suggesting that you're hard to book on podcasts, that you're like a get? Why? are No, I'm not. <laughs> But everyone who's like, you know what? My uh, grampy and I started a podcast in the barn, and we thought it would be real fun to have you on. I'm those, like, a fun first guest. I get a lot of those asks. Right, right. We've never actually done one, but we'd love to have you. Like, do your kids <laughs> have to call you Jesse Brown? Um, no. Let me answer your actual question. What was your actual question? Is it hard to be angry? Is, what was the, <laughs> yeah, that, that's sort of the headline. The, is, it, is it hard to sustain cynicism? You've been cynical for decades. 
Isn't that exhausting? Yes, yes, it is. But I know no other way. I think that anger and frustration, and I don't mean to say that it's simply about like the hypocrisies of the world. Like, you know, like anger is a very personal thing. And I think that some stuff gets implanted in you very early. And yeah, there's parts of it where you kind of have to maybe put away childish things and try to be at peace. But then there's also... I don't know. Like, what's your juice? What's your fuel? Like, you keep returning to this idea of cynicism, but to try to keep this operation of this company going every day, it's like, I once heard a film producer talk about, like, what is producing, and it's like, everything wants to collapse always. Hmm. And the natural state of any endeavor is for it to fall apart and just not function. And we function, and we put these things out on time, and some of them are really, really good, and every day is like... All right, let's get behind that boulder and just like it might like roll downhill and roll over my feet today or I might get it like another inch closer to wherever it is we're going. And that's a whole interesting thing to think about, too, because I don't really think about getting it to the top. I don't really think about selling the company or retiring. It's this thing of like, I guess I'm just going to do this forever. So I don't know how you could be cynical and, and wake up and do that every day. I remember a friend of mine, Roger Fredericks, who's a TV writer, saying making a film is like 50 people trying to draw a straight line with a giant pencil. And I've never forgotten that. I love that image so much. Yeah, that's good. Do you think the Jesse Brown that people perceive is close to who you really are? Like, I remember Wayne Gretzky saying, there's Wayne Gretzky and that's the enterprise. And then at home, there's Wayne. And it's a very different thing. And that's how he compartmentalizes those two things. Do you think Jesse Brown, in quotes, is a good representation of you? Uh, yeah, like to an extent. You don't get everything and you don't want everything. And it's important for me and for people in my life that it's not everything. So you kind of have to decide what to hold back. But I live in fear of constructing something that's false and then having to maintain it. It's not about any kind of integrity. It's just about like, that seems like a lot of work. When we, th when we think about certain broadcasters who really put up a front, like a version of themselves that nobody really experiences in real life, that must be exhausting, you know? I've also, like, it's less so these days because I think that the show is, is less about me than it ever was. But what was exciting about podcasting to me in the early days was that there's so many parts of conversation or of like what you're thinking or just like being a little bit mean or the little parts where everybody's like wrestling in their seat before the interview gets going. All the real life that got kind of smoothed away from like a, a slick CBC interview back when I was hosting at CBC. And when podcasting was new, part of the excitement of it for me was like, you know, I've given up my dreams of being an artist, you know, but like I am a communicator and I do express myself. I wonder if a podcast can be a medium to express like a lot of myself. And so there were like interviews with people from my personal life and old friends. And, you know, like the early episodes had like people I dated and enemies and things. So I just was wondering, like, could the interview format sustain all that stuff? Overall, a lot of me has gotten onto this RSS feed. People do come after you hard, though. That is no secret. My father-in-law always says there are givers and takers. Givers sleep better, but takers eat better. In an interview with uh, Sarah Berman on this show last year, you alluded to deep-seated personality flaws that have cost you friends, sleep, and well-being. But you also conceded that you might be a lot poorer if you were a better person, in quotes. <laughs> what did you mean by that? Uh, I know which of my colleagues fed you that question, too, uh, just by the content of it. Um, what did I mean by that? Wow. Uh, 
what did I, I, I don't remember the context. Like it's, it's hard for me to sort through my, my deep-seated personality flaws and recall which one I was referring to. <laughs> and if I was a better person, I probably would be less wealthy. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that would seem like a funny thing to say at the time, but like, um, I don't know. To what extent is, does being like a less good person... Uh, well, I guess I, I think I'll that, say in your defense, that that does speak to someone who has a self-awareness. Is that maybe something you don't show enough? That you get it. Yeah. You know, I don't know why I came on this show. Who's even listening to this? Okay, so it is very self-indulgent, but I guess that this whole episode is, and I, I, I agreed to this. I'm a part of this, so I'll, I'll go with you here. I think that one thing that I've learned just from, like, covering people is that denial is a really powerful thing and people's blind spots like this idea of like a search for truth and you know the interview is a kind of a cross-examination where you try to get at it there is no one who is not oblivious to some aspect of themselves which is like totally apparent to everybody else so i try to be self-aware without being like annoyingly self-obsessed but i'm sure that there's like some very obvious stuff that uh that i, I just don't see I didn't really hear anything you said after everyone has a blind spot about which they are blissfully unaware and everyone else knows it. I'm trying to think of what mine is. I've been accused of having a crippling desire to be liked. Like that's the, uh, that's the other side of this coin, the burden of kindness, <laughs> how I am keenly uh, aware that people are hoping to have a negative interaction with me because they can't wait to tell everyone what a jerk I was at Sobeys. That's not your blind spot at all. That's immediately apparent. Do you know what mine is? Yeah, you're angry. Yeah, I am. <laughs> I'm really angry. There must be there must be kind of a freedom in that though, isn't there? If well, everyone thinks I'm angry anyway, I might as well just be angry. Yes. Yes. I find it very liberating not to have to hide, you know, I'm sure that I'm crippled from having to hide other things, but it does feel like it's better for me as a media critic or, you know, and as an interviewer, if I don't care about what people think of me, you know, it was always like a latent part of my personality that my friends saw that I could be kind of nasty or cutting, but, um, you know, there's truth to it. So it was definitely freeing when I could just say what I felt, you know, it was fun. It was fun. But in, in that quote, when you say you've lost friends and sleep, is that true? Does that weigh on you? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There have been occasions where I have felt like, if I'm worth anything as a critic or as somebody's trying to tell the truth, sometimes it's like I have like I can't just criticize people I don't know or don't like. Sometimes I felt like it's necessary here for me to say something critical about somebody who I am friends with or work with or something like that. And that has led to conflict and hurt feelings and broken relationships. And I've definitely in cases felt like did I talk myself into th that this was noble or honest or was it a performance of honesty and uncompromising truth and I sacrificed a friendship to perform that or did it need to be done? And some of those questions remain open for me. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody 
half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. When the pandemic started, uh, you published isolation interviews on this show, in one of them, you mentioned you have a hard time with empathy. Is there a question there? Well, I w- there's more of an ellipsis there. I was trying to not do a sort of CBC radio. Can you talk about that or walk me through that? Or what, what does that feel like? I guess I was just going to lay it on the table and see if you picked up the verbal baton in any way that suited you. I'll let your ellipsis hang. Um, I think that I have like decent EQ, I think I'm literate and aware of people's emotions. And I I hope to be like an ethical, like I care about how people feel. I try to anyhow, but I don't think I feel what people feel. I think that maybe I've made an asset in this job out of like, I'm willing to let things be really uncomfortable in a way that like it, it, it feels so awkward or people feel so bad for somebody else when they're in a tough spot that, um, you know, you, you can't ask certain questions or have certain conversations. So anyhow, a lot of like what I've tried to do professionally is purpose the things that are maybe not great about my personality towards a positive outcome or towards a service that I could provide. <laughs> but if you're asking me like, do you not feel empathy? Like the nerves aren't dead. And certainly, you know, family and parenthood has, you know, that brings things right to the surface. But I question like, you know, that's that word has become so popular these days to be empathetic. But like, Let's be moral. How about that? Let's actually make decisions that take people's feelings into consideration because there's no prize for feeling bad on behalf of somebody else, you know, or like in reflection of somebody else. Like that, like it doesn't really accomplish anything that you feel someone else's pain or joy or, or, or whatever they feel. It's become its own kind of bullshit. Has parenthood kind of shaken you out of that? Out of my uh, like lack of empathy or out of my uh, or into a greater understanding of EQ? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, their needs are immediate and unrelenting. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things you like to do with your kids? Well, 
I mean, here is... This is where it's going to get uncomfortable. It's not going to... I mean, this is... It's not uncomfortable for me so much as, like, that's what I leave off the table. You know, they just don't have a choice if I'm going to involve them in my public whatever. So, I don't know. The deal I've made with my partner and my kind of implicit deal with them is, like, this is going to be your choice, whether you, whether you want to be associated with any of this or not or your life to be reflected. Like, as soon as you say anything about them they exist in people's minds. And then that becomes something that they might later have to deal with is the way in which, I mean, it's something that I have to deal with and that like anybody who listens to me has an understanding of me and then they meet me and are terribly disappointed and we have to deal with that. But I chose that and they, they, you know, they didn't. I live in the country. My life is very quiet by design, but I do like to visit the noise on occasion. How much of the noise appeals to you? Oh my God. Like, are you, do you go to the, the Giller Awards and the stuff and the dinners and you have to show up at a thing? Do you like all that? Man, I go to things like journalism event galas pretty much anytime I'm invited. And I love walking into the room and just feeling like, I'm sure I'm imagining it, you know, 99 out of 100 of the people have no idea who I am, but I'm like, oh, there's so much hate and there's so much enmity towards me. And I've written about this one and that one. Like, and then people are lovely and say nice things and are like, oh, it's great to see Canada Land doing so well. I'm going to tell you a story about the last one I went to. Please do. All right. This was like the Canadian Journalism Fund gala. And it was like half journalists and it was half the money people who give money to the, this fund and they, you know, what do they do? They give money to, you know, some foreign correspondent who's been driven out of their home country in South America and aren't they brave? And they are. And, and, and so RBC or somebody gives them some money and then there's internships for kids and all the wonderful people who are brave journalists get, you know, grants and get little videos about their wonderful work. And Matt Galloway's hosting and he gives an award to David Suzuki. And David Suzuki is introduced by Margaret Atwood. And Margaret Atwood says nice things about Suzuki. And then Ed Bertinsky, it's all of the good, fine people of Canada just congratulating each other on how wonderful and good they are and giving each other awards. And I'm invited. I don't know why I'm invited. I mean, maybe to spice things up. But then once you've got me there, you've got a problem, which is like, where do you seat me? You know, like that could be an issue if you put me at the wrong table and who can even keep track of the various journalists and editors who have taken umbrage with me and, and are reporting over the years. So where do they seat me, Jono? They sat me at the student journalist table. Amazing. Which like, that's great. They're like, it's a great way to meet people who uh, might be looking for jobs and have great stories to pitch. But then we get to the part of the evening where Matt Galloway turns to the audience and says, you know, all of you wonderful people, journalists brave and, and, and funders of brave journalists, thank you. But, but there's still there's still one more thing to do. There's something here for one of you lucky people. Look under your chair. One of you will find an envelope with a special gift. It's tickets, airplane tickets to anywhere Porter flies. And I look underneath my chair while everyone else is and God damn it, I got the envelope. No. And it only occurred to me later that they put it at the student journalism table so a student journalist would get it. And Galloway says, who got it? Who got it? Who got it? Somebody must have got it. Anybody find the envelope? The envelope remains in an undisclosed location. And I'm just like, oh, shit. And the students see the envelope in my hand and the students start yelling to Matt Galloway, over here, Jesse won, Jesse won. And then like a spotlight is right in my face and the entire room turns towards me. And Matt Galloway, who is just unflappable and classy, goes, oh, there we are. Oh. Jesse Brown gets the envelope. 
There's a story in that somewhere. And there's just this, I'm just like, and I just, I'm sorry, everybody. I'm so sorry that I won the tickets. And everyone looks appalled. Uh, and it was, it was the greatest gift. It was the greatest thing I could have won. Better than the, the David Sissi Where did you prize. go? I didn't go anywhere. You gave it to one of the kids. I had to give it away or else it would look bad. I'm not Yeah, but also as a human being, that's the right thing to do in that moment. The right thing to do is to go on a trip and have fun. We've been locked up for two years. I still think about those tickets. When I was on the show last time, here, let's uh, revisit this. You mocked the song I wrote for Canada's 150 Celebrations, mm-hmm. um, which was a, a, a re-lyriced version of Alanis's Thank You. How about finding a way to say Canada thank you? Thank you, For your prairies and mountains and tundra and sea. Thank you. But I also explained to you why it was the worst thing ever, and then you agreed. We got somewhere. I did. Yeah, we really did. It was all of the cliches that we roll our collective eyes at, for better or for worse. Your point is worse, and I totally see how it's worse, and I totally understand how that wasn't everyone's experience. I mean, this is the thing. When people talk about COVID and we're all in it together— Someone who's in a bachelor condo at Bay and Bloor had a very different experience than I did. So Mm -hmm. uh, it's the same as traveling internationally. When people say, what is Canada like? You can't describe what it's like. You can only describe what it's like for yourself. But you asked me what Canadianity is, which is the sort of uh, word that uh, Jeremy Taggart and I use on our podcast. Taggart. It's the word that you made up, yeah. A word that we made up. So Mm -hmm. you made up a word too, Canada land. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? I uh, I think I just like the way it sounded. Like I, I like I've heard people talk about like when people talk about Chicago politics. Like there's a wonderful sense of place in a lot of American storytelling and journalism, you know, fiction and nonfiction, where like New York has a certain meaning and California. You can sing songs about these places, and they have like this like deep resonance. And we just can't do that. You can be like, yeah, that's Winnipeg hard, you know. Like we just like we just don't take ourselves seriously to an extent that that becomes possible. So, anyhow, I've heard people talk about Chicago land in this way that always just found like felt really lurid and interesting and engaging to me. Like what is like, it, and it just is suggestive of this deep sprawling corruption and you know, forget it. It's Chicago land. And you know, I think I probably heard a couple of people in internet speak, be like, I'm from Canada land. I feel like there's a way to kind of like use that term and point it towards some kind of an indictment or some, give it some grit, give it, give it some tension. So does it have an eye roll baked into it? No, I'm trying to get away from the, like, I don't know if it succeeds or not, but the idea is to get away from an eye roll. Because I think, like, Canada land versus Canadianity, I guess. So your project is like, what does it mean to be Canadian-ish? Like, what, what is Canadianity? Let's try to figure that out. And I'm trying to suggest something like Canada land. Let's put it under a fucking microscope uh, in a really hardcore, yeah, I don't know. So I don't know if it works, but that's the idea, man. Is it what you meant? The business, the enterprise, the word. No. And this is why so much more than I intended it to be or could have made it. My life is this weird thing of like 
first 15 years is just sort of like begging for a drink. It just felt like any opportunity to just do something, to write a funny piece or to, to report or do a documentary. And I was just like, had my cup out trying to get anything to drink. And then all of a sudden I was drinking from a fire hose and I, and I haven't stopped. And it's, it actually can be unpleasant to, to drink from a fire hose. <laughs> my greatest dream when I started this, which I thought was really unrealistic, was like, I wonder if this could be my job and not just my podcast. And then, you know, as a reach goal, you're supposed to have a reach goal when you're doing crowdfunding. Like, you know, give people some idea of the grand global vision, just something to shoot for. And I said, all right, we'll become a podcast network if we reach $10,000 in crowdfunding, thinking like as if that'll ever happen. And then it did. And then I had to make it. And then I had to find people to make it with. And it's been like really difficult and bumpy, but we're doing it. And the things that my colleagues are making are things I could have never imagined or dreamed of and the stories that people are telling. So watching it actually become this thing that lives outside of me and independently of me and increasingly there are things that I listen to when they're published that I'm hearing for the first time is like the greatest, like it's just, I can't, I can't imagine being luckier than that. It's, it's amazing. But being equal to that and, you know, to back up to what we were saying earlier, to hold it up and not let it collapse uh, which just when I feel like it has a life of its own and exists without my interference, it seems like something happens where I'm like, oh, shit, and then I've got to scramble to keep it going. And so, yeah, that's kind of how I'm living, you know? I'm just, like, just trying to build an institution, Jono. Here's my last question, and I'm going to ask you to um, refrain from joking it off or shrugging it off or using sarcasm. Do you think you could just request that? You could just ask for me to give you a genuine, sincere answer to a big question. Oh, okay. Since you asked, I'll... I'll yeah, I'm hosting the show. All right. Try it again. Are you happy? Mostly not, you know? <laughs> I mean, there's... Mostly not. Mostly not. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like, mostly not. But who the fuck cares? Like, is that the goal? Like, that's a ridiculous. There are moments of intense joy. There's moments of pride. There's moments of accomplishment. I really like food. There's pleasure, you know? I feel contented. I feel fortunate. And bl There's a lot of positive stuff that if I were in your weird, you know, eat, pray, love corner of public communication, I could have various aphorisms and encouragements. But who needs to hear that shit? Like, it, it's, it's not useful... Uh, peace of mind would be nice, but uh, what's the value proposition of contentedness? You know, who does that help? Well, I guess the reason I asked the question is because I'm trying to offer the people a peek behind the curtain. Right. And so when they go off to dinner parties, they'll be able to say, you know what I heard? You know that, uh, you know that crankopotamus who's always uh, <laughs> angry all the time? Guess what? He's happy. Yeah. I, Who knew? I, I just think life is imperfect and there are joys of the craft. I'm working on a story and I wasn't sure if any of it was true. And then I got somebody on the phone who I'd been trying to get on the phone. And then without me giving them any of the details, they told the story that I heard from somebody else and all of it lined up. And I realized the story was true that I'd been like going over for months and, or weeks anyhow. And I felt really happy, you know? I'm like, yes, we're going to get to tell people something that no one's ever heard before. Like reporting is a drug like no other. When you are in a position of telling people a cool or interesting or important story that no one's ever heard before, that's lightning in a bottle. There's lots of pleasure and joy in, in my private life. But like, no, I walk around unsettled all the time, all the time. It's not right. Things aren't okay. And I'm not necessarily trying to correct that. 
Did you say I'm not necessarily trying to correct it? Yeah, I'm, I'm not necessarily trying to feel otherwise. Huh. I got a meter saw this week, and my daughter got a new skateboard, and she asked if I could build a little ledge to set her skateboard on in her room, and I can with my new meter saw. And I built one and uh, set her skateboard on it. That's probably the happiest I've been this calendar year. Well, howdy-doody. I keep the bar very low, Jesse Brown. That way I am never disappointed. You're the gratitude from Big Mouth, and I'm the shame wizard, and both have their exactly. place. Mm-hmm. In all seriousness, I have a theory as to why I'm very happy. It's because I lost a parent at a young age, and much has been written about when the worst possible thing happens to you as a child, everything else seems insignificant by comparison. So it's not from nowhere that I am just in a state of bliss all the time. It's because I think I have a really good thing to compare it to. I read that about you in that newspaper profile, and it endeared you to me as like, I now understand why he says those horrible, painful, positive things all the time. (laughs) And he's like kind of figured out a conception of the world that is just generous and works for the world and for him. And that's his role. He's an entertainer. Like I got, I, I, I provide a different service than you, man. So in this Batman Joker kind of duality thing we're doing here, I have nothing in my childhood to complain about. And yet, uh, look at me and look at you. Right. Do you know that I enjoy you thoroughly? When you pop up on my radar, like it's nothing but joy. When I see your tweets about like rainbows, they're great. And, and be like one. It's, it's a certain kind of, painful joy and then thinking about what to say in return is like I'm glad you're here. It's your word all. You're here. <laughs> we need each other. The very sight of my name puts a smile on your face. Mm, it's an oversimplification. The things you say are so painful for me they feel like abuse. It feels like you're doing it to me on purpose even though they're tweets to the world. But when I think of the perfect response, oh, I had a good one recently. Are you sifting through my Twitter profile? I am. You should share the story of uh, Norm who knit the toque. I just met him this week in Chester. I'm not talking about that. Maybe I'll get you to read it. Uh, On April 28th, you tweeted, Of all things to be afraid of, your own potential feels like a weird one. Oh yeah, you roasted me bad. It was good. I wouldn't worry about that if I were you. Yeah, that's a good burn. (laughs) You kicked a cotton L kitten in the face. Uh, Feels good, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It really does. It's been nice chatting with you, Jesse. It's nice having you in my life, Jonathan. Well, that's your Canada land. I'm Jonathan Torrance. Thank you for joining me as I stole the show from Jesse this week. Hopefully this hasn't been too traumatizing for him and he'll be back next week to take back his job. If you like this show, please support the work this team does. It's really important, and it's subscriber-supported. And you can join all those paying subscribers just by hitting the link in your show notes. You can also email Jesse any thoughts you have about this episode or anything that Canadaland produces. I'm told he reads everything. He's at jesse at canadaland.com. You can also tweet. The show's handle is at canadaland. The website is canadaland.com. This episode was produced with the help of Jonathan Goldsby. Tristan Capacchione is the audio editor and technical producer. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. Music by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Again, if you like this show, 
Just support it, will you? By going to canadaland.com slash join or just clicking on the link in the show notes. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.